For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to Greenlit, the Buffalo 8 podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Helderman, and each week we're going to dive into a different piece of content, film and television, and we're going to talk with some of the biggest names in front of and behind the camera as we dive deep into how they were financed, produced, developed, marketed, and the crazy stories behind how many of them got made. Hey, everybody. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Chris Ray. Uh, Chris is a Chicago-based filmmaker, um, well-known for working for a number of years with her ex-husband, Joe Swanberg. She was a really definitive uh, player and producer and creator in the mumblecore movement that took off in Chicago. Uh, We're just coming off of working on a project with Chris called I Used to Go Here, which was set to premiere at the 2020 uh, South by Southwest Film Festival, which of course got canceled due to the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, Chris is really talented artist, writer, and, and filmmaker, uh, and also came up during the same time as people like Joe Swanberg and the Duplass brothers. Um, her stories are insightful and interesting. So without further ado, here's the episode with Chris Ray. Hey guys, so I've got Chris Ray on today, uh, who Bondit just came off of working on a project called I Used to Go Here that was meant to premiere at South by Southwest before the COVID-19 outbreak. So first off, Chris, thanks for joining us and appreciate you carving out the time. Yeah, definitely. It's easy to carve out time these days. <laughs> it is. It is. That's sort of the first uh, first piece of feedback I think everyone gives uh, when we start these conversations right now. <laughs> so I, I, I want to start with um, I used to go here and walking us through how that project got greenlit um, from early development all the way through the film now being completed. Um, yeah. You want me to just go for it? Sure. Yeah, just, just go um, for it, Chris. <laughs> um, you know, I wrote it, I started writing it probably three or four years ago. Um, <clears throat> I was inspired by uh, a trip to my old university. Um, I, my last feature after it played Sundance and before it came out in theaters, I had gotten invited to a bunch of different universities to show the film and talk to students. And um, early on, I got invited by my alma mater. I went to Southern Illinois University and I, th- the, the the experience of the film actually isn't based on my experience going there because I wrote the outline for this movie on the train ride down. Mm-hmm. Um, so on, on the train, it's like a six hour train ride. Um, I, I was like, Oh, this is kind of an interesting premise for a film and started writing. Um, and then of course, like plugged in, like kind of informed. I also went to like Indiana and, um, I was at Micah in Baltimore for a little bit and, and just went to a few different universities and thought it was like a really interesting um, dynamic because at the time 
I had, you know, a moderate amount of success um, having my film just playing competition at Sundance, but certainly wasn't, you know, uh, a household name or, or anything uh, of that level. But um, seeing myself through the eyes of the film students that I was talking to, I felt a little bit of like an ego inflation um, yeah. because, you know, in their mind, I had like totally made it. And, um, and I could also feel how nice that was and how yeah. someone might want to kind of just live in, in that, in that zone for as long as possible. Um, and, and so anyway, I built the film around that kind of idea. Um, and then also threw in things that I think are universal, like, uh, the idea of success, the idea of like, you know, staying true to yourself, um, as like an artist and how scary that is once you do reach uh, a certain level of success. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, getting older and, um, being single and all kinds of things. Um, one thing I de- definitely didn't predict was this correlation that ended up happening, which is that in, in the film, the main character, Kate, she, you know, everything gets sparked because her, um, she's just written a book and her book tour gets canceled. And a corollary that I didn't anticipate is that I finished this film and South by Southwest and the rest of my film festival circuit got canceled. Um, So it ended up being really similar to my own circumstances without realizing it. That's great. Um, I mean, it's not great, but, uh, but it's, it's funny how life imitates art even unintentionally and serendipitously. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. This was not something I would have wanted to happen, but yes. Um, so yeah, I wrote the script and did, you know, a bunch of different drafts. I think I did like 12 drafts or something and then um, sent it to my agents. I'm represented at UTA and um, they started setting up meetings with me with different, um, for me with different uh, production companies. So I live in Chicago. I flew out to LA and met with different production companies. Um, to see if we vibed and if it was something they wanted um, to work on. And one of the people that I met was Becky Sloviter from Party Over Here. Um, Party Over Here is a production company of The Lonely Island. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Um, which is Andy Sandberg and Yorma Tacone and um, Akiva Schaefer. And I had known their work um, from all of their SNL skits, and um, MacGruber and 
pop star and I like all that stuff, but um, I called my agent when I saw that meeting on my schedule and I was like, I don't know. They are, they make really silly stuff and this is a comedy, but this is not like that kind of comedy. And he said, trust me, you'll love Becky. And I was like, okay, fine. So I went to the meeting and I did love Becky and she loved the script. And, um, and she told me that the guys wanted to start working on stuff that was like, you know, a a little different than what they did. Um, and so we ended up pairing up and, and that was kind of the beginning of, of the next phase of, of getting the movie together. It's great. It's great. And so, so you've got at that point, a partner effectively in the movie. Right. And was the process working through the draft or was the process finding a distributor or financier? What was the next piece of going from now you've got some momentum to moving it ahead? Yeah, I think the next piece was probably uh, casting. Um, and we, um, we cast, Gillian. So I started going, I started meeting with, with actors and sending the script out. And, um, and I, you know, that process took a a few months and then we brought Gillian on board, um, which was very exciting. Um, And we were trying to find somebody to pair with her to play David. Um, And I just, no one seemed right because I really wanted that character to the, the, that character is sort of like, you know, the villain in a way. And, and he's really up to some bad stuff. <laughs> and he's sleeping. He's a professor who's sleeping with his, one of his students. And, you know, I started actually writing the script before, um, before the Harvey Weinstein case and before the Me Too movement. And once, you know, once that came about, I was like, whoa, I'm actually, you know, dealing with something that's like very timely and um, specific. And one thing that I really wanted to make sure of is that I didn't cast that character as a kind of like villainous guy. I didn't want him to seem creepy um, because so often I think those situations are situations that people get into with actually really nice, charming people. And, um, and it makes it more difficult. So, um, so Jermaine was perfect for me. I wanted him to be funny, you know, attractive. It's sort of like unassuming, like not feel scary. Um, but be a little pathetic. And, and also that character kind of, um, embodies what I was talking about earlier, this, this idea that like, if you, if you exist in this bubble of university where you have reached a certain, certain level of success that having these students come in and give you adoration um, can be intoxicating. And I think that's, that's what's going on with that character in the film. Um, So so yeah, I, I, um, we, we ended up casting Jermaine and that was, that was like perfect for me. That's like, he's exactly who I wanted. Um, and I actually, once I got Jermaine in my head, I could not think of any other actor that would fit the bill. So hmm. luckily that worked out. Um, and then, and then it was time to look for, um, 
for for financing. So then we we ended up sending out that little package to um, to different financiers. We worked the budget. Um, we broke the script down. We continued casting some of the um, the smaller parts, and then um, and then we were like sending it out with UTA's indie finance division to different um, to different um, potential investors. Got it. And that's how ultimately I, I remember at least the way I recall it coming to us was that the the Andy Sandberg team had contacted the Jordan Levine and the Yale entertainment guys. Yeah. And it sort of came full circle to us at that point. And at that point, I don't know that there was a distributor on yet. Cause I know we've worked with myriad who's distributing, but I don't think they were on yet. And I think all that was being pieced together. Right. Yeah. Um, definitely. That was all being pieced together at the time. Yeah. Got it. And, and I'm curious, you know, I've, I've, I've read and, and had read even before we had done this, this project with you that a lot of the films you've worked on and just your style in general, utilizing improv and sort of very, very real, authentic performances for actors um, in, in the stories you tell and certainly in your background as a, as a filmmaker and as an artist, how hard has that been from a packaging standpoint, especially when buyers and financiers want to see everything sort of tied neatly with a bow. If you're going to experiment like that, using it more as a blank canvas, as opposed to everything being so rigidly sort of perfectly fit together. Did you find that at all with this in that development process? Did you find that at all in the fundraising? Um, In this project? No, because um, my first two, I came from a background um, that relied heavily on, on, improv um it not just uh dialogue but even the even the entire structure of the film would be something that was improvised and my first two features um were entirely improvised and um were small enough that i worked very closely with the the cast and the rest of the crew to develop the story as we went along um and after i finished my second feature i I did it. I just decided I didn't want to do that anymore. Honestly, it was like, I, as much as I'm very proud of that early work, the process was very stressful for me because it takes, it takes me, I think the process of writing a feature script or short, um, it takes, it takes the writing process. I think for me to really know what the hell I'm talking about and what I'm, what story I'm trying to tell. Um, and, and what I would do, what I was doing, earlier was sort of just relying on a premise. Um, and, and then it would, it would, I wouldn't really understand what I was making until I went through the editing process. And often what I would learn, especially with those first two, especially with my second is I would edit the whole movie and then I'd go, shit. Uh, now that I know what I'm doing, I <laughs> wish that I had done, I wish I had filmed all this other stuff. And, and my second feature, I think we ended up shooting, um, you know, 20 or 30 additional minutes, um, that we tacked on to the beginning of the movie to make the whole, to make the thing make sense. Um, and for, and to say what I really wanted to say in the first place. So doing that in a draft is, 
I, I mean, that's exactly why people write scripts, right? It's like, yeah. yeah. Um, it's to work it out and figure out what you're saying and um, work it out on paper before you begin. So now that I've done that, you know, my, my, I made a short that way and uh, my last feature, Unexpected, that played at Sundance um, also was scripted and, and this film too was scripted. So, um, and, and to be honest, I didn't, we didn't really do very much improvising in the, in the film. There was some, but I don't think there was more than the typical comedy. Um, and, but the way that that has played into my work uh, as I see it is that I really am into naturalistic grounded performances mm-hmm. and, and dialogue. So the dialogue that I tend to write, um, you know, it is very much what an actual person would say. Um, it doesn't feel, you know, necessarily scripted. Um, but it is. <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So, so bringing us back now to, I used to go here. So you've got, you're not, you're now out having discussions with financiers. The project now starts moving forward, gains financing. You have that package put together. At what point, and I, I think at that stage, then Myriad was on board. So the distributor now is at least in early discussions. Has that been consistent with the earlier projects you made? Things You mentioned things that have premiered at Sundance, and um, um, I'm curious no. how that's evolved. No, this is a very different process. Um, I... Um, I, with, with unexpected, um, I got, it was financed by some people, local company in Chicago that I knew very well on a personal basis. Um, and, um, and then also through Chris Weber, um, the basketball player, the formal basketball player, um, who also has a connection with, with someone that I know very well in Chicago. And so it felt very homegrown and the investors were, the investors were so hands off that, um, that it felt like, you know, it, it, I mean, it felt like I didn't have anyone um, imparting anything on me at any time. Um, and, and in terms of getting a distributor, we took the film to Sundance and sold it ourselves. So we didn't even have a sales agent. Um, this was, I believe it was, I had just signed with UTA, um, but wanting to try doing the sales ourselves. Um, I was also very, very involved in that process with unexpected um, where I was, you know, part of the decision making of like who the movie ended up going to. Um, so it, it was, it was a very different process dealing with, a dealing with a, um, you know, a production company dealing with Yale throughout the production process and into sales, um, you know, did feel different this time. Do you think, and, and I know this is sort of going to tie in a couple of, of points. You made the comment about, uh, life sort of imitating this movie the first time around with, the cancellation of the book of the main character mirrored with the cancellation of South by Southwest for this film's premiere. But then also, um, you, I believe you've had a, a background and a continued you know, ongoing background in higher education and so right. seeing the world through the lens of 
another one of the characters and being in that world of academia. Um, and like you said, that becomes a world unto itself where there are you know, a variety of nuances that come along with that. How much of that, it seems like a lot of your work has been influenced by your life. And yeah. like you said, naturalistic and really very grounded in reality. How much of that side of it also feels from you know, almost like both of the, the main characters are pulled directly out of your own personal experiences at different times in your life. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I, I tend to do that. Um, I, yeah, I'm not, what exactly was the question here, Matthew? <laughs> I think it's more so just understanding what, what does your day to day look like in the world of academia and how that could have influenced or, did influence directly okay, when you okay. thought so, about this. So, so in terms of, so I'm a professor at, um, at Northwestern. I teach every once in a while, um, just one class that I teach, you know, I would say the, the most I've taught is, is one class for three quarters um, in a row. But typically I, you know, I, I just actually didn't have, it almost had no influence on the script. Mm. Um, weirdly, because I am a professor there, but the, I really have had for the most part, a pretty removed experience. There's a lot of protections in place that for good reason. And pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah. That's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. University life. Um, and I haven't had any, like, I, ha I haven't really had any real personal interactions with my kids. Um, with my students where I've like hung out with them or gone to a party or anything that, um, that sort of happens in the movie. Um, and I started, I think I had a, I think I had several drafts of the script written before I began teaching there. I also used to teach high school, um, and, and have been teaching for a, a long time. And I wish I had a better story there, but I would say m most of my, it was nice to have sort of like the vibe of what a college campus is like, but I would say most of my experience that I've like led to this film had to do with me um, not in a professional capacity interacting with students, like in, um, you know, more of a, uh, I guess, I guess it was sort of professional capacity, but back to when I was saying when I was like going on tour and, and showing my work there. Got it. Got it. Yeah. No, that's interesting and, and helpful from a, just a storyline perspective. 
Yeah. I want us to go back to the Lonely Island guys and Andy Samberg and working with a, a more uh, sort of infrastructured process when I used to go yeah. there. Um, so we've done a lot with Jordan Levine and Jordan Beckerman over the years on the Yale side. We'd never done anything with the Andy Samberg team. Um, we interacted with them very, very minimally on this. Curious how your interaction was. Curious what that process was like from you saying in the very beginning to UTA and, hey, I'm, I'm not sure this is the right fit to ultimately making what you know, we have seen to be a really quality piece of work that I'm curious how that process evolved and how that comfort developed over time. Um, yeah, I... Once I got involved with them, I, um, I mean, I've had nothing but a great experience working with them. Becky Sloverter, who I mentioned, who was running their production company at the time was incredible. And I, the movie wouldn't have gotten made without her. She was so committed. Um, she truly loved the script. I really felt like she became a friend of mine um, and she also continued to be like super professional and just really clear headed. And, you know, all making a movie is, is like encountering obstacles and, <laughs> um, and, and trying to get past them. And, um, and she, you know, every time we hit one, which was constant, um, all, I mean, still, I'm still, I'm dealing with a hurdle right now when it comes to just like distributing the film. There's like all of these hurdles and she was constantly like with it, like trying to figure out what the best situation was and, and like, and she was great. They, they helped with Yorma was, was sort of like my, my point person when it came to interacting with, with the guys, um, Akiva a little bit, but mostly Yorma and he was really helpful from a creative standpoint. Um, he, he weighed in a lot um, in terms of casting. And when I had a, you know, often I would come to him for advice and he was really committed to um, talking things over with me. He gave me some notes on the script. Um, and then ultimately he came and played a part. He played the part of Bradley Cooper um, in the movie. And, um, and it was so fun. It was like such a great excuse to get him um to get him down to, to shoot with us. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I was looking forward to those guys being part of the promotion, um, process mm -hmm. and the press and the press. Um, but, uh, but things are looking a little different now, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was great to just be a part of their brand really. Yeah, no, I'm sure. And I'm curious, um, from a, total 180 of having a big what was what was set to be just a great premiere opportunity at south by to now having to pivot to much more of a digital footprint on the release of this movie how has that changed uh in, in terms of your involvement with them but also the way you've thought through it and then working with the distributors on i know everyone's dealing with this in real time is that a, a super frustrating thing from a, from a filmmaking standpoint, an artistic standpoint. Is it, again, you talk about the, the never ending roadblocks. I mean, this is sort of the, the global roadblock. Uh, and how do you, how do you sort of troubleshoot that through the lens of also wanting the film to have this, this life and this uh, reaching this audience? Um, 
yeah, I think some of it, it feels a little bit like, uh, like being, uh, you know, having been pregnant for a very long time without actually giving birth. It's really strange to be going through, uh, you know, I have been doing a lot of interviews and especially during the time that South by Southwest is supposed to be um, doing a lot of press and podcasts and things like that. And it's, it's so strange to, <laughs> and now, you know, the, and then now the film uh, just got sold to Gravitas, which is great. Um, and it's so strange to go through all of the, the rigmarole of, of the logistics of all of these things without having ever seen the film in front of an audience. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't know any way to describe it except for the strange. And I will say that in the beginning, when, when the festival got canceled, it felt very personal. You know, it felt like a, you know, it felt like a bad thing that was happening to me. Um, and I, it felt also felt like a big overreaction at the time. You know, the, the festival got canceled a week before it was supposed to happen. And I was so wrapped up in preparing you know, and I was flying my friend in to DJ for our party. And I was like, sending, we had created a party invite. I was sending it to everybody. I was like, you know, coordinating with my other filmmaker friend. I was like, we should wear the same outfit. I mean, some of the stuff <laughs> didn't have anything to do with like the buying and selling of, of work. It was, uh, it was a celebration of right. this art that I had spent so many years creating. You know, it felt like, as the difference between having a wedding and going in and signing your marriage certificate, you know? Right. So, no, that's a, that's um, a very good analogy for it. So I, it's like the movie is going to come out and that's, and I'm very, I mean, I very happy that's going to happen. I'm very grateful and I feel very blessed that, um, you know, I, a lot of people, a lot of people were in a situation where the pandemic struck, when they were in the middle of production or right before they were about to begin. And I feel so lucky that I have a finished film. Um, and, uh, and then of course, you know, not very long after South by Southwest got canceled, it became clear that this was actually a really big fucking deal. And thank God they didn't have that festival, you know, because we see the effect yep. of, of Mardi Gras in New Orleans, for instance, um, so obviously it, it was, it was certainly the right decision to cancel. And, um, and now it doesn't feel so much like uh, something that happened to me because, uh, countless people, it, almost everyone had to cancel something, um, a trip, a, an anniversary, uh, you know, a wedding, a funeral, like everything has been canceled for everyone. So, um, it no longer feels like a, like a sad personal story but a collective sad story um yep. so you know yep. yeah totally totally get it totally get it well shifting gears to some of the earlier days of your work and work with joe swanberg and the mumblecore movement and the sort of mumblecore of chicago um, so i i grew up in connecticut and was obsessed with the mumblecore movement in new york and Noah Baumbach and you know, that sort of whole scene. Um, it has felt like over the years, obviously, you know, Swanberg and Duplass and all of that stuff was really, really influential to me. I mean, when I was in college, it was like my life in many ways, certainly in terms of how I thought about 
accessing film as this really interesting uh, voice that felt like hadn't really been told before. Um, it's obviously changed, right? I think, I think Mumblecore has changed. That scene has changed. But I'm curious, from your days living in it, very much so, <laughs> with both feet, and then seeing it evolve, the movement as a whole, how it's changed, how you think it's changed for the better, parts of it you think we're worse off for not having as much as we used to have with buyers being really hungry for that content and audiences like being obsessed with it. I mean, I can say I've got a brother who just got out of college and I think if I ask him who uh, the Duplass brothers are, he probably can't identify it, but he would know pieces of their content, but the, the sort of direct connection to it seems to be uh, less uh, prevalent now yeah. than, than it was when I was in college. So I'm curious take us through the, the days of living in that time and the evolution of that movement and then just reflecting on it you know, as we sort of sit here in 2020. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, at the time I, I, when I was making that work um, with Joe Swamberg, who's my ex-husband, um, you know, we, Joe and I went to film school together and we graduated the same year and, and both moved to Chicago and started making a film together called Kissy on the Mouth um, in 2004. Um, and we had everything we needed at, you know, at the time it was very new. Digital video was very new and very exciting. And Joe's parents had bought him a, um, a PDX-150, a Sony PDX-150, which was a really nice prosumer camera and um, Final Cut Pro. And at the time that was, it was uh, all you needed to make a film. Um, no films had really been made like that before because we're, we were used to a certain um, standard um, that couldn't be achieved by, you know, making a movie with, um, with only that equipment and we weren't able to achieve that standard in terms of quality but we had the freedom to make something with four people we made that movie just joe me our friend kevin Pittman, and our friend kate um wintrick just four of us and we made it when we all had part-time jobs when we got home at night, on the weekends, we didn't have any responsibilities except to go to our part-time job and make a movie together. We were all 20, 22 years old, 23 years old. Um, and it was really fun. And, and, you know, we didn't have any expectations for real success. Um, and, but we wanted to, you know, we had stuff that we wanted to talk about. Um, and we were using this new medium, which felt um, you know, honestly, it was Joe, Joe's vision at the time I, in the very beginning, I thought he was crazy, you know, because <laughs> I was like, no, I, we just graduated from film school. You have to write a script. You have to do storyboards. You have to like do all this stuff. Um, and he was, you know, his attitude was, no, we don't. And, um, and so we didn't. And we, we, you know, got him, I got him bored and we made this movie and it got into South by Southwest. Um, which was the first place I had ever premiered work and now the most recent place that I was supposed to premiere work. 
Um, and the programmer at the time is, um, was a man by the name of Matt Dentler, who um, is now working for Apple, who was a real, um, you know, he basically took our movie on blind submission. Um, and it just so happened that that year, um, the Puffy Chair also premiered by the Duplass Brothers. Andrew Bujowski's work premiered. Um, and, um, and there was another film that was really, that was very groundbreaking at the time called uh, Four-Eyed Monsters. And I'm blanking on the name of the filmmakers, but they were, um, they were also a couple who had put themselves in the film. And, and all of the, that work had something in common. Um, but we didn't know each other. Mm-hmm. So it was just a real, like, you know, there was something in the ether. And I think the thing that was in the ether is the, the ability to make films for so cheap. Um, and, and the desire to do that. Um, there is no longer that barrier to entry. Um, but it was still so new that not everybody was doing it Mm. and it was exciting and, and it was really fun. And, um, and then, you know, Joe and I both continued to make work like that for a long time. Joe is still making work that way. Mm. Um, and, uh, I sort of evolved myself and now I'm more interested in telling a story that, you know, as I was saying before, that comes sure. that that comes from a script. Um, but I think some those early kind of um, tenets of, of that um, still exist within me. And even while I was making this film, I was like, we could do this. We don't. We only need like I remember for sure when we were doing our pickups. I was like, why do we need a full crew? Right? <laughs> we can do this with five people. I know this. We don't need PAs. I'm just going to buy everyone Chipotle and we're going to eat it on the floor and we're going to do it. And, and we, and I did buy everybody Chipotle. Like, um, you know, I think it's having that early kind of gritty, like indie beginnings definitely still has an influence on, on the way I make, I make work. Um, and then, you know, in terms of mumble core and its relevance, you know, I, it, I, of course, it's still having an influence. You know, if it had an influence on you, it means it, it does trickle down to your younger brother. And, um, and I think that there's a whole generation of people that at the time were really interested in what was going on and felt, um, felt very inspired by it. I know a, a friend of mine, Hannah Fidel, um, who just uh, finished a production on a series on FX called A Teacher. She, um, she credited me and my movie. Um, it was great, but I was ready to come home for her inspiration to feel like she could start making films herself. Um, and I think seeing that people have such little, you know, little resources in terms of equipment and money and seeing that they could tell a story that could get traction was very inspiring to a lot of people. Um, and a lot of good work came out of that. Um, but you know, with anything it snowballed and I think, you know, then all of a sudden it was, everybody could, could do something. And when you have so many voices, um, it can become kind of overwhelming and cluttered and, you know, you have good quality stuff and you also have stuff that just feels like, um, an imitation of something else. And, 
And so the way it's sort of changed. And I think that's natural and good. Um, and, um, but I, yeah, it's influenced just like any kind of period in cinematic history it, it influence, I think still remains. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so interesting that movement when you think about the idea that that, that South by Southwest had Swanberg and yourself, and then the idea that puppy chair would be that same year. Um, you know, I know we sort of always look back and reflect on these festival classes and where are, where are those people now and what are they making now? But I agree with you on the idea that anyone can now go out and shoot something, you know, forget about needing a Sony camera and you know, final cut, right? I mean, you can shoot something on an iPhone and cut it together on the iPhone and release it from the iPhone okay. to a bigger audience than most people could achieve distribution, you know, in the nineties and early two thousands, but it hasn't necessarily made the storytelling better. And I think that's, what's so interesting about some of those films from Mumblecore that I think they resonate not only because people could achieve them on a shoestring, but because you could still tell a story people really responded to on a shoestring. And it wasn't the need for huge effects and huge crews and huge on-screen talent that, would be the draw. The draw was it's a really well-told piece of content. And I, I, I think there's something to sort of be said for losing a lot of that with, you know, now there's TikTok and all these you know, crazy, crazy, ridiculous things that they condense the, the viewing experience and the storytelling yeah. experience. And you would think like, who are going to be the next great storytellers of this movement? And look, there, there certainly are. Um, and we're certainly seeing it emerge. And I totally it's interesting hearing your perspective being so at peace and logical about the idea of like, well, the wave just changes and, and that's how it all evolves always, which I think is right. Um, do you think when you say someone like Joe is still making content like that, um, do you think there are a lot of people able to still make content like that? Or do you think that as an artist, as you've evolved into um, what I would say is sort of the next phase of it, even when I look at someone like Bombach, or even like Wes Anderson to a certain extent with Bottle Rocket kind of being a hybrid mumblecore meeting a more traditional film and obviously having a studio infrastructure behind that first movie, but that you've evolved and that I feel that there's some filmmakers still doing it, but certainly fewer and farther between. Um, but still there's an audience for it, right? There are still people that want it for sure. Well, you know, I would, I would definitely not, I would not lump in, um, Wes Anderson or, or bomb back into the mumblecore genre because the, those guys were making independent films long before we were, um, mm -hmm. bottle rocket was, you know, one of the, one of the first bottle rocket and, um, and, uh, you know, kicking and screaming were one of the, some of the films that influenced me back when I was in high school. Um, mm -hmm. and it was, you know, years, later before uh before i started making work or, or just started making work so certainly influential but definitely both of those films used much more traditional um means of 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 production than having you know one camera and you know uh, only like you know practical lights that you happen to have in your house um yeah. <laughs> before um making and, and didn't use improvisation or anything like that though. Um, though they certainly did have a huge influence. Um, but, um, you, you know, I think people's appetite changes, um, just like they, it does with, with anything that's, 
that's popular or new, um, it becomes it, a, only a small amount of it can remain ultimately. You know, it, it's like it, when something is new, everybody wants a lot of it and, mm -hmm. um, and it's exciting and then you get sick of it and, and some of it can remain. And I think Joe, you know, Joe, who had a show on Netflix, three seasons of a show on Netflix um, called Easy, used a, a lot of the, m many of the same principles that he, that he um, also used for his, his very first film. Um, he also had a much higher budget level, uh, was not using his friends anymore per se, but also, but, you know, bringing in uh, well-known um, actors. Um, that I, there's definitely still a, an appetite for that, but I think it's, um, you know, it's smaller than it, than it was in 2006. Um, right. so not, not everybody can do it, but, but Joe is one of, you know, the Duplass brothers have changed a lot too. Their sure. work has really, um, has really evolved and they're doing stuff that's, um, scripted, but, they're also still doing stuff that's um, that's in the same line of, of what they were working on with the puppy chair. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, it, you know, it, that, and, and since, since that movement, if you could call it a movement, the wave is probably more likely uh, more descriptive since that wave came about um, so much of the reason that it came about was because of what was available with technology that technology has only become more accessible. So at the time, you know, we were able to make Kissing on the Mouth because Joe's parents had the means to spend, you know, $4,000 to give him equipment. Now, like you were saying, you only need an iPhone. But just because, um, you know, just because Tangerine came out and was shot on an iPhone, doesn't mean that now everybody can only make stuff on iPhones and we're all okay with that. You know, right. it, it's like, it, it was a cool achievement and it is available. And if someone does something new or exciting or unique with it, I think everyone is now like, yeah, that movie was made on an iPhone. Cool. That's an acceptable way to do it. I still think that people, you know, it, it's not going to become the standard. Right. Right. No, I, I hear you. It's funny. The, the sort of few rapid fire questions I usually ask at the end here. Uh, the first one is, how have you seen the business and the process evolve uh, since you started? And I think that's kind of been the, the topic we've, we've actually talked about the entire <laughs> through line of our discussion. So I don't know that we need, right. to, need to focus on it. I mean, I think yeah. the, the question I would sub in, uh, in that place would be, as a woman working in this industry, uh, yeah. with obviously a huge movement that has really been very powerful over the last several years. How much has changed, if, if anything? How much do you see sort of on the precipice of you know, changing female storytellers, filmmakers, executives, perspectives, etc.? cetera? Um, and how has that changed over the career? Less so about craft and more so about perspective and, and female involvement. Um, you know, it's, it is tough. It's like Im implicit sexism still exists big time. Um, I think there's still a systematic problem 
big time. I mean, we're, we see it constantly. Um, but I do think it has improved. Um, and I see its improvement. It's been, we, it's been hard, hard to, hard to tell because as, you know, as things have been changing, I think, um, in the, um, for the benefit of female filmmakers in the last five to 10 years, I also have naturally sort of like grown as a filmmaker, um, myself. So I think, um, often when I get more opportunities, it's hard to know if it's because things are changing for the better for all women, or if it's just, you know, that my career is growing on an individual level. Um, but I do think people are interested much more now than they have been in, um, the uh, female voices. And I see that not just from a, uh, standpoint of a writer director, but I see that when I go in and meet with executives, when I first started the, the rounds in LA, um, meeting with different production companies, et cetera, I had this thing in my mind that I was going to go be meeting with a bunch of like, you know, middle-aged white guys. And, uh, and I was like, all right, here I go. And then <laughs> it was surprising to me that I ended up meeting a lot of really cool, uh, women that were my age, often younger, that were really energized, that were, you know, had a, a um, had an important position in their company and the ability to make choices. Um, and I thought it was, you know, I, that was a, that was really uh, surprising to me, obviously, in a positive way. And, um, and I'm continuing to see that a lot of people are putting um putting a lot more um, weight on, on the female perspective. And I think it's, it's great. There's still a long way to go, but I'm, I'm certainly seeing um, ch change for the better in that, in that realm. That's great. The, the last question I have is you're obviously in Chicago. You've spent the majority of your career and building your career in Chicago, at least as home base for people outside of LA, uh, outside of New York, Thoughts, guidance, perspective, uh, especially as people go about thinking how to access making their own work, accessing the business of entertainment, how important is LA and New York, if, if at all, and, uh, and your experience? Uh, I think it's super important. <laughs> I think being out, being in, living in LA and living in New York um, can be very helpful. If you are if you're interested in going the route of making independent work, I think you can do that anywhere. And I do think that there is sometimes an advantage to not being in New York and LA when you're first starting out because you have resources um, that are, um, it's difficult to make an independent film um, in a city that is an industry town. Um, because there's protocols and people are used to it. I mean, it's like, you know, going to a cafe and, you know, in Silver Lake and saying like, Hey, do you mind if I just, uh, could I, you know, <laughs> whatever. They're like, give me no. a fucking break. No, yeah. but going to a cafe here in Chicago, or if you're in 
you know, Kansas City or in, you know, Delaware or whatever, you can probably find people that are willing to just do it for fun. Right. Um, and it, like we've been saying, equipment should not be a barrier. Um, there's no shortage of information on the internet of basically how to create your own film school. And um, I do think that there can be something interesting um, for Hollywood to say like, oh, look at this interesting thing that's going on in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, there's, wow, this young filmmaker from Baltimore, Maryland like, just made this like really cool independent film versus like, oh, there's just another kid in LA who's like trying to do something. So I think it can, I still feel um, some positive from being out of town. Um, right now during the pandemic, it doesn't matter where the hell you are. Everybody is <laughs> Skyping right. and doing stuff like that. Um, in normal times, <laughs> if that ever, or I'll say in the before times, uh, I did find that I had to go out to LA quite a bit to, um, to meet with actors, to meet with my agents, to meet with different production companies and to, to take meetings. But I didn't feel the need to do that until I was well into my career. Um, so yeah. I, I teach a class. The, teacher, the class I teach at Northwestern is a, it's a web series class. And the, the, the philosophy behind it is that, um, that they, you know, they should just like run and gun and make it without a script and quickly throw it together and see what they can do. Um, and you know, the, in the time of a quarter, they have to come into the class, not having any idea what they're going to make to 10 weeks later, they have three episodes of a web series hmm. and, and it's really cool. They make really good stuff. Um, and they learn to do it in a really bootstrappy, um, quick way that I think lends itself really well to making independent work. And that's of course, as I've been talking to you about how I began and I always encourage those, those students to stay in Chicago. If they're thinking about making, if they want to become filmmakers, if they're thinking about making their work, because you have a tight group of community of kids, um, not always kids, but you have a tight community of students who already know each other, who know how to work together um, and who can live fairly cheaply um, while they do it, you know, right. the rent in LA is crazy. The rent in New York is even worse. And, um, you know, you can live in Chicago without a car, um, and, and run and gun and make something, you know, that you're proud of and try and get it out there. And I think that's a really valid way to go about it. I appreciate it. No, it's funny. You, uh, I agree with everything you just said. And, um, usually the last question we sort of leave it with is, if you're giving guidance or a piece of uh, you know, <laughs> imparting wisdom on what young people should do when they're thinking about going out to start a career. I mean, I agree with you. Um, in college, I scraped some money together, shot a feature that is just terrible. Yeah. yeah. Looking at it, looking at it 10 years later, That's great. Uh, but, but used it as sort of this launch pad to come to LA and take meetings and ultimately sell the film to a very shitty distributor and sort of learn the business <laughs> through the lens of like, okay, there's this huge, machine of an industry that is out there um, yeah. so totally agree with you the last thing i'd leave with would then just be so i used to go here 
coming out from Gravitas? Any details where people can find it, where people should look for it, how people should think about accessing it? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what I know, and then we'll see if it comes true. <laughs> yeah. What I know now is that they're wanting to release it August 7th. If theaters exist, it'll be in some theaters. Um, if they don't, then it'll be on iTunes and Amazon for purchase. And then it'll be on HBO December 18th. It's great. Yeah. It's great. Well, Chris, it was really, really lovely chatting with you. Thanks for carving yeah. out the, uh, the time while we're all locked in. And um, I don't know if there's anything else, but that's all from my side. So appreciate that. Yeah, it's great. Afternoon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for being a part of uh, getting the movie made. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> we'll talk soon. All right. Bye. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Greenlit, the Buffalo 8 podcast. For financing questions, feel free to contact us at Bondit Media Capital at info at bondit.us. For production, development, and distribution questions, feel free to contact us at Buffalo 8, info at buffalo8.com. We'd love to hear from you and hope you'll continue listening to the podcast episodes ahead. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.